In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Well, I feel already really proud of myself because one of my guesses has already come true. I should have made a bet, a hedged a bet at how early in this episode you're going to bring that up. <laughs> Literally the minute that we press record, I'm like, I was right. I mean, as you know, since this week I'm doing the episode, I, I paid special attention <laughs> to your predictions. So Thank you, you know I know. <laughs> well, hi. Hey. Have you been watching any true crimey stuff or listening to any good podcasts lately? I have been watching a lot of true crimey stuff, actually. Okay, so you know the network, the app Peacock that NBC or whatever is doing? I I do. Do you get free access to that if you have cable? You don't even have to have cable, I think, to get... Or maybe you do to get the free access. I don't think you do need to get cable. So there's... I think they have three options. There's a free version, which has a lot of stuff. Then there's like an advanced... Like the, the plus version or something where okay. you get access to everything on the network. And then there's like the ad free, which is even more. And so I'm sticking with the free <laughs> gotcha. for now at least. But one of the cool features, I know I mentioned this to you off air once, but they have this feature where instead of just finding on demand shows to watch, you can go to a like sort of false live TV setting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Which is really cool. So it's, they have, I don't, I don't want to say, I don't know, maybe 25 quote-unquote networks that you can flip okay. through. And it's all live, so you can't pause or rewind or anything. And they do have uh, commercials, but they're generally like two or three commercials. They're very short. And turns out almonds were on my high sensitivity <laughs> list. No, none of that. None of that maniac. <laughs> it's so funny that something that was on my good health list was... <laughs> I hate her Thanks, so much. Thanks, Everly Health, or whatever it is. Thanks, Everly Well. Everly Well. Uh, she needed to worry more about that haircut than her almonds. Just saying. The one where sh- her hair is literally shaped like a mushroom? <laughs> yes. Yes. And her skincare routine. She looked like she had some sunspots. Almonds? <laughs> Anyhow. <laughs> but no, none of those commercials. It's like a peacock commercial, basically, for something else on the network. The reason I bring it up is because they have about five or six true crime-themed channels. Oh. Yeah. So they have like a Dateline channel that just literally plays episodes of Dateline all day long. Um, awesome. They have an Unsolved Mysteries channel that plays classic Unsolved Mysteries episodes all day long in order. Um, Are the old... Un- so I've I've only been watching the new Unsolved Mysteries. I think I would like occasionally catch pieces of episodes when it was on when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But are the old ones good or was it really cheesy? It's a mixture of both. But I what guess it the is... new one was also a mixture of both because they had that whole Aliens episode. Oh, yeah. But this this had more, I guess, because each episode of the old Unsolved Mysteries is like four or five stories in a half hour episode. Not like okay. one Not hour a whole episode, episode about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's very okay. like the new way, you know? So yeah. it was like little segments and they do updates and they had a lot of they had a lot of real true crime cases. The reenactments were legendary. Unsolved Mysteries <laughs> is just what I like to call, and I'm stealing this from Nick at Night, <laughs> but it's a part of our television heritage. <laughs> I was just thinking about Nick at Night the other day and how much I loved I Dream of Jeannie and <sighs> Bewitched as a kid. And I'm wondering if they're still good or were they ever or were they ever good? You know? Like do they hold up? I think they hold up because I think they were ahead of their time in a way for having like a female 
protagonist lead lead yeah. that was not all about the sex or all about being a house housewife yeah so that's kind of cool i think but yeah i don't know i think it's also interesting that bewitched was so popular in a time when like witchcraft you would think would be yeah. looked at as like so taboo Ugh, yeah that's true when she passed away yeah. i cried and i was like a, a tween <laughs> crying yeah, over elizabeth montgomery <laughs> on nick at night <laughs> i remember didn't i told endora... the kids at school and they were like who <laughs> who didn't endora her mom uh didn't she pass away only recently like because she outlived elizabeth montgomery by a number of years didn't she yeah she did because she continued to do like film and, and tv i think I, I think it was pretty recent actually so ha- has there been anything incredible that you want to recommend I've just been, so when I work now in the daytime, because Davey's gone back to work in the office, so I'm home alone now, and I can't like listen. Like Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> exactly. Just like my former, my former doppelganger. I don't, I can't do podcasts when I'm working because my work has just become too involved. especially mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially with work from home because everything's slower. Mm-hmm. Now I'm putting like Dateline on or there's a Snapped. <laughs> there's one that just plays Snapped all day. <laughs> oh my so. God. You love Snapped, don't you? Who doesn't? Who doesn't? I've never so, seen it. Oh, you you love it. So I and it's all free. So I really like that. So I've been watching a lot of true crime stories on Dateline that have been very interesting. I, I don't have any specific one I would call out, but I would say definitely check it out if you're looking for like easy true crime stuff to put on. It's it's yeah. really the best. And it's satisfying. I hate when I can't pause and rewind, but it's sort of satisfying. It's very nostalgic to feel like I'm watching TV like, you know, I used to watch TV. Yeah, it's so funny. I was just reading something about how I think there was a study that showed that we enjoy TV less when we can binge an entire series because we don't have like the anticipation and we don't have the like theorizing about what could be happening next when we can watch the entire season all at once. Yeah, and I think it also it forces people to pay attention. (laughs) It does. That's true. Which I love. You know, that's my thing. It is your thing. I've, I've, I am aware. <laughs> we also watched, um, oh, we've been watching a lot of Modern Family recently to keep it light. Oh. So <laughs> Cute. we, we want to get out of the true crime or, you know, drama, housewives filled world, anything like that. We just flip on Modern Family and it's like total mood changer. Yeah. We, I think I said this on one of our previous episodes that Miles and I finally stopped watching Married at First Sight after we watched 12 seasons of it. Oh, yeah. And uh, so now we're watching other television shows. And so uh, we've watched, I think, like five or six true crime documentaries since we recorded last. So um, I watched, at your recommendation, The Gravedigger's Husband. Oh, right. Gravedigger's Wife. Gravedigger's Wife. Thank you. Uh Uh-huh. I don't quite remember that story because I've watched a few and that was and that was just a one episode thing. Yes. Um watched the American Murderer Family Next Door where uh, oh, Chris Watts kills his wife and kids. Unbelievable. The Disappearance of Madeline McCann. Have you watched that one? I don't know if we very 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 finished it. I think we have an episode or two left, but I've seen almost all of it. Okay. That one's good. I at first I was like not clear on why this was such a gripping story, but there's a lot of really bizarre twists and turns in that story. And I still don't know what I believe. That's what I like about it. I still don't know exactly what I believe either. And I feel that same way about The Staircase, which I think I only have one episode left, but in the episode that I just watched, Michael Peterson got sentenced to, or he got found guilty of killing um, Mm. his wife, Catherine Peterson? I I forget her first name. 
Well, and, it's the owl. But I'm still not sure if he did it. Oh, okay, so there's the owl theory, which I was just <laughs> talking to Miles about. The theory that an owl attacked her and caused all the lacerations on her head, and then she fell on the stairs and died. I That whole thing is very, very weird to me, because he doesn't have any motive. There was never a murder weapon found. And a lot of the evidence is kind of, like, sketchy and strange. So it just, I was, I honestly, full, like, fully arms stretched out, like, Macaulay Culkin face in disbelief when I heard the jury say, guilty of first-degree murder. Because I I was sitting there going, you know, if I only had the information presented to the jury that I've seen in this documentary, I would not be able to say, beyond reasonable doubt, he's guilty. I just wouldn't. Because there's too many question marks. I know. It's hard because the the only evidence that really, I think, gets destroyed a little bit for the prosecution is the blowpoke. And, yes. you know, that being introduced as the weapon and then all the talk about it and then it's missing and then it's found. And I, I don't know. I still feel like he's guilty. I really do. It's way too much yeah. of a coincidence. The whole having it happen before that way and getting away with it, doing it again. Why? Which That's not. A, did you see the amount of blood? That is something it was I will never be able yes. to get over, despite the the criticisms of who the blood analysis, who did the blood analysis and blood spatter and all that. Regardless yeah. of the traje- the um, sheer amount, the, the volume of blood was shocking. I have seen and, people and fall they down never steps. explained it. I have fallen down steps. I had fat. I have fallen down more fallen steps down than steps. she fell down, and yes. I was fine. <laughs> My sister fell down steps when she was younger, like a teenager just the same length of steps in our house basically and really bad and she you know she had an injury she had to go to the hospital from her like her calf or something like that i think she didn't uh die and lose like no 20 gallons of blood yeah and i know scalp injuries bleed a lot mm-hmm. like you bleed profusely when you injure your scalp but that was a lot of blood yeah yeah and it's unclear to me what caused her death? Like that never, I never felt like that was covered. Was it just blood loss? I Because it wasn't brain trauma because there was no like skull fractures. There was no like edemas in her head. I forget what it was, but I think the thing about it that the documentary that got me the most frustrated throughout the whole documentary was I understand that these kids are defending their father and I understand oh, that they yeah, yeah, believe yeah. their father to be innocent, but... At the same time, they're li- they're doing this documentary in the house where their mother was killed or died. Very or died. brutally. Yeah. Very, very, yes. very brutally, suddenly, unexpectedly. And they pour their hearts out about how, what a wonderful man their dad was, how wonderful he was to their mother, how in love they were. This is outrageous. And they're having, like, laughing and having dinners together and joking. And there's no mention no mention the whole time of, hi, two rooms over is the scene of where you walk up and down those steps every day laughing with your dad. How could they believe they did? he did this to my mom? Hello? Where is yeah, the sadness that... and sympathy for this woman in the family from the kids? All they care about is clearing their dad's name. There's not a word of mention hardly at all. Well, except for the one daughter who is like pretty firmly convinced that he did it. Well, that's her daughter, though. Yes, yeah. You know, that's her daughter from a previous marriage. So that's very... I know that there's updates... very strange case. There's definitely updates after that that you should watch, I think. Um, Okay. There's been some changes. But, ugh, that is a gripping one. Well, should we 
actually start talking about the case that we're <laughs> talking about today? I'm so Or should ready. we just talk about other cases? Okay, I know. great. I think it's you. It's me. It's me, it's me. It's you. Great. <laughs> so this is uh, season two, episode two of Law & Order, episode two of our second season as well. And the episode title was The Wages of Love. Now, I thought this was probably just not based on anything, probably just like a clever little title, you know? Oh, uh uh-huh. But I looked it up, and I think it could be possibly based on something. Okay. So there's a song, and this will interest you, because it's Eurovision-related. Ooh, I like Eurovision. Okay. So there's a 1969 song by Muriel Day, and it was Ireland's entry to Eurovision in 1969, and it's called Wages of Love. Okay. And I looked it up, I listened to it. And the whole time I listened to it, I'll put a link to it in our episode okay, great. somewhere. Great. But um, it's kind of the the type of old timey song where if they played it in an episode of a scary movie, it would be really creepy. Oh, okay. Do you know what I mean? Because it's very upbeat and poppy. Do you know those types oh, of yeah, songs? Yeah. Oh, like when you get to a scene where like you as the audience know they're about to discover something gruesome, but there's like cheerful music playing. Yeah, like they're playing like, like sunshine, yeah. lollipops and yes. rainbows by Leslie Gore as they come across a scene that the candy yes. man just, it's like that. That's the type of song okay. it feels like to me. So it gave a kind of vibe. But I'll just read you okay. a few of the lyrics that make me think it could be based on this. Okay. It says, uh, in the song it says, love that makes you laugh, love that makes you cry. Before you really understand it, it could make you live, it could make you die. Oh, dang. And then there's also a lyric that says, there will be bridges to be crossed and there will be teardrops to be lost or you will have to pay the cost. So when you fall in love, you pay the wages of love. So I think wow. pretty, pretty on. I think it might be yeah. uh, one of the writers was like, oh, fitting for the song. episode. Yeah. Okay. So um, just to start out the prediction section here. Now, I only caught one of your predictions coming to life. Tell me if I'm wrong. It was just the beat cop one, right? Yes, because it opens in the Chinese restaurant, and yes. uh, they're beat cops having Chinese food. <laughs> yes. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So of your to remind everyone, we have to have four beat cop openings this season. We've gotten one already. First Already. <laughs> I feel like I probably should have bumped that up to like eight, but that's... That it's would be okay. like a third of the episode, so. Yeah, you have a lot of other things you have to satisfy. I so do. I think that's good. Okay. <laughs> so, as we said, we start at the Chinese restaurant with these two sort of off-duty cops, and as they're having their meal, a waiter delivery man sort of guy comes over. Um, it's kind of confusing the way it happens because they're representing this man in a very skewed, stereotypical way. He comes over and he alerts the cops that, at his last delivery, essentially, there was a there was a situation, and they need to go check it out. So, they're, like, bummed they had to, fin- they had to finish their meal. I mean, I guess I would have mm-hmm. been, too. <laughs> I love Chinese food. <laughs> I feel like we don't have a good Chinese food restaurant in Santa Barbara. Not even close. No. It's, it's sad. Like, there yeah. really isn't any good one. It, when your best option is Panda Express, you know you don't have a good Chinese food place. You know what's funny is I feel like somebody told me there's a vegan Chinese food restaurant here in town that is the, the, and this person is not vegan, but they said it's the best Chinese food they've ever had. Yeah, I'd be interested. So they go to the scene and somehow it's standard police work to let this ordinary guy back onto what is now like an active crime scene with them where the perimeter is not secured. Maybe there's a gunman here, who knows, but they're walking around with the Chinese food delivery guy through the active crime scene. When they get through this very beautiful place, they find with their new friends the dead bodies of a man and woman half naked in bed together. Yeah. And then the opening credits begin 
So I took this opportunity to go to the local Elks Lodge, and I did a few <laughs> rounds of senior bingo. But that damn Prudence wins every single time. I swear to God, she's cheating. But whatever. Did you go for blackout in the last round? I, I blacked out in the last round. <laughs> a fury for not winning, because Prudence <laughs> yes. is always winning. Yeah, I'm not allowed back. But <laughs> I came back home, and we're back in. We're back on the scene with. Uh, it's gonna be weird to not say Grevy anymore. I know. Logan and Soretta. Soretta, yes. But he's only, Soretta, I was looking ahead, he's only in this season. Actually, he gets replaced by an actor in this episode playing a different character. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know it was going to be only one season, though. Wow. I'm pretty sure, yeah. Okay, so don't get too comfortable with Soretta, I guess. Nope. So Soretta and Logan are on the scene, and they pretty quickly think it looks fishy they don't think it looks exactly like how it's supposed to on the way out the door there's this nosy neighbor that stands in the hall and she says she's surprised that the victim was with anybody because his wife melanie and he have in a divorce proceeding and she's moved out and then they say well you know we've got a 30 something year old female and she says if melanie's 30 then i'm vanilla ice she put on a backwards baseball cap and started rapping about teenage mutant ninja turtles and (laughs) everyone got pizza No, she's not Vanilla Ice. <laughs> I, I, you know what's funny about that is I was wondering if the timing lined up to where Vanilla Ice was at the height of his fame at the mm. time of this episode, and they thought it was going to be like this specific reference of like a really well-known celebrity and not like a one-hit wonder who faded into obscurity the minute <laughs> that song was off the radio. I mean, it was like 91, 92. It probably was. Yeah, I think so. Uh, if only they knew he would just be a... A failed reality star now. Although I, I feel like shocking. now he's on a HGTV show. Is it successful? He, well, I don't. I mean, he makes over. It's called like Million Dollar Makeover or something like that, where he goes and re remodels homes. I'm oh. pretty sure that I thought Vanilla he was Ice doing... has a whole TV show on HGTV. Wow. All right. Well, I'm glad, <laughs> glad he's giving back. He's the new Ty. Ty, whatever. Ty Pennington. I don't think he's giving back. I think he's just, you know, earning money. He's also not in this episode. It's actually no. just a regular woman. And uh, she reveals to them basically that, you know, this isn't his wife. We got a little twist. And so they go see the real Mrs. Cullen. That's the gentleman's name who's, who's passed is Edward Cullen. No kidding. Which is the vampire, Edward right? Cullen. Yes. <laughs> Okay, just So checking. just bear with me through that. So they go to the real Mrs. Cullen's apartment, and they sit down with this distraught widow, and she is a guest star. Um, her name is Shirley Knight, and she was nominated for two Academy Awards in the 60s. For I was going to say, she actress. was not a bad actor. She was pretty good. Yeah, she did pretty well. And it's, she was yeah. featured in films up until 2016, and she just passed um, April 2020. Oh. So rest in peace. Rest in peace. What's her name? Shirley Knight. Shirley Knight. About a year ago. Oh my God. And when I went to her Wikipedia page, not that this matters, but the pic, her like headshot from when she was uh, actress in the sixties, she's stunning. Oh yeah. Like Twiggy. She's like, Oh wow. Gorgeous. Anyway. So she says they've been separated. She's very distraught. Obviously. Um, she says she's never stopped loving him. When we're watching this, Davy goes, well, the real question is when did she stop loving herself? <laughs> oh, <laughs> dang. <laughs> She's got like random clips and barrettes sort of like haphazardly slicing into her hair, which is like a nest of straw on her head. Yeah. yeah. She's very, she's 
they're really They've made her up to be very frumpy in this episode yeah she's basically wearing a couch cushion and <laughs> she says that the divorce was amicable um but when they mentioned that he was found with a woman in bed she's like gobsmacked and when asked she said her son was with her until about a half hour ago and she's gonna call him if they don't mind to give him the news before they you know break it to him and they're like sure of course they head over to jamie's that's the son and he's actually kind of cute but i thought he oh yeah he is cute it was weird the epi- the scene he gets really sweaty really quick and like really rapidly through the scene like by the end of the scene he's completely moist and he's I just thought he was crying i think he's crying i think he is too but like his whole face becomes <laughs> slick and every yes, scene they go back weird. to him, he's he. I expected by the end of it, he'd be like a lobster in a pot of water with two big claws. It was isn't so there a gif hot. of uh like a scene from Key and Peele where like he's literally like sweating and and like water is running off of his face. <laughs> yes, that's what I it think was that's like. kind of exactly what's happening in this scene. <laughs> exactly. So they ask him and he confirms he's he's very upset. He loves his father very much and he was having dinner with his mother and then he was studying by her because she gets lonely now that they're divorcing. And he What says, do you mean studying by her? Like at her house, I guess. He said cuz she said he was okay. studying. Yeah. You sometimes use the preposition by in mm-hmm. a way that I don't understand it to work. <laughs> oh, like at her house. Like at Yeah. You never say like, "Oh, I went by like Jessica's." Well, I went by implies, like, I stopped in, I was driving around the neighborhood, not like I studied by her. That would be like, we were in a park, and she was studying over there, and I was studying over here. Mm. What if someone was like, I don't oh, know. Where, where were you today? And you were like, oh, I was by Jessica's. That would, that in my mind, I would hear that and think that you were in the proximity of her place, but didn't actually go to it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, he is at the house. It must be It must be an East Coast thing, because I feel like you say it sometimes, and I've never heard anyone use by in the way that you do. Well, it's either an East Coast thing, or it's a me thing. We'll, we'll find out yeah. <laughs> by next episode. If anybody else uh, on the East or West Coast knows if uh, it's a regional thing to say by as a preposition when you're at somebody's house. Yeah, let, let us know. know. <laughs> it could be any location, really. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, in any event, he, she says, he says that he was at her house and he was studying. And then he also says, you know, before they leave, you know, my mother wouldn't kill my father. And so they go back to the station and Craig and, and them go over multiple options of what could be, what could have happened, blah, blah, blah. But one thing is clear is that there's no forced entry at the location. So someone obviously had a key or was let in. And mm-hmm. he's like, why don't you go ask Mr. Collins's colleagues, you know, confirm what's going on in his life that we don't know. So they do this, and they confirm that he was seeing a girl named Alexandra Beckett. Love that name. Mm-hmm. Very dynasty. <laughs> it is very dynasty, yeah. yeah. Um, and she said she worked at Christie's, uh, this high-end art gallery in the city. Mm-hmm. And they go to Christie's. I, and the only reason I know Christie's is because of those previews at the movie theaters. Do you remember those, where it was like auctioning this property by Christie's or whatever? Do you remember those in movie theaters? I don't know. I don't think so. Oh, okay. Anyway, go ahead. (laughs) So uh, they go to Christie's and her boss confirms that it is Alexandra. And I think this was really weird. They've done this before in the show. They literally show the woman a photo of her boss's like deceased corpse on the sales floor. Just like here. Is this her? Is that really how they do it? They're just like, you're at work here, just dead body. But... She says, um, yeah, this is her, and a little bit more information about Alexandra. She had been seeing a guy named Doug Phillips until she met Edward Cullen, and then they broke up. 
Edward Cullen was everything she wanted. Doug Phillips was kind of a ne'er-do-well. Uh, she says that Edward and Alexander were very much in love. So it was a real relationship. It wasn't just a fling. Right. And she also mentions there had been a scene with the jealous ex at a restaurant. So they decide to dig deeper and find out, you know, what's been going on. And so they look into this Doug Phillips character's life. And it looks like he had made several calls to the Cullen's apartment, including on the night of the, of the murder. He has his fingerprints in the apartment as well. And they so Doug Phillips is another guest star, kind of. I only bring him up because... He looked a little familiar, and I looked him up, and he's an actor in his own right. He was in Michael Clayton and a few other things. But more importantly, hmm. his name is David Lansbury, and he is, in fact, the <gasps> nephew of and- Angela Lansbury. Oh my god, I love Angela Lansbury. Oh, me too. I recently read something, and it could be true or false, I have no idea, but it was on a true crime thing, and it said that Angela Lansbury actually like did a lot of work for, like, in the criminal justice within her own life because there was a big crime in her life i think someone was murdered or something oh really Interesting. yeah i, have to, I, I didn't should, know that i should look into it before i bring it up on the episode but <laughs> so i might edit that out or i might bring it up next time or listeners if you know angela lansbury's real connection to true crime please let us know but yeah really interesting right yeah but they bring him in and he's you know the typical angry bitter ex he said he knew the victim mr cullum because they had been at a cocktail party that he got flirty with Alexandra at while they were still together. Um, mm-hmm. In any event, they're not answering many questions. They decide, you know, this is over, but they have enough to charge him, so they do. In the next scene, we have Logan and Soretta sharing hot dogs on the street. It's a very New York moment. <clears throat> I love hot dogs. While they're talking about where the best hot dogs are, and then apparently Soretta decides this hot dog is not up to his standards. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> anyway, as they're sitting here having this, this hot dog moment, Soretta starts laying doubt on them having the right guy for the crime. And he supposes that if Jamie was really with his mother, he'd have said, my mother didn't kill my father, not my mother wouldn't kill my father. Right. I literally heard like the Matlock or Murder, She Wrote theme song in the background <laughs> it's a very like aha moment like oh you're yes. really astute they decide to look into this alibi and they discover that jamie was in fact studying with classmates at the time he said he was with mommy so with this new information they confront jamie and he confesses that his mom had asked him to lie about his whereabouts on that night because she was scared but he's sure she didn't kill his father it's natural for her to have been scared forensics comes back on the gun they're able to trace it back to an employee of edward cullen's who says he sold it to him for 500 bucks. I would have charged more. The gun? I guess, I don't know what guns go for. Like, that seems like a, in, a fair amount? I don't know. In my mind, guns go for, like, $7 million. So they go over to confront Shirley, who performs a monologue from an episode of The Golden Girls about having a hard time getting a job as a woman of a certain age. It's very, very laid on, very thick. And yeah. Logan and Soretta push further. She's, like, very annoyed by this, and she sees them out. She thinks they're very rude to be bothering her. So they leave. <laughs> and uh, they end up arresting her anyway. She's held on bail for $200,000 for the charge of murder too. Um, in the next scene, her defense argues manslaughter. And as you said, this guy who plays her defense attorney, who I think is unnamed in the episode, is... Yeah, I don't think they ever give his character a name. Random, especially since it's Jerry Orbach, who is going to go on to replace Soretta as... Yes. Um, Lenny Briscoe, Briscoe, the new detective. Mm-hmm. He's the one who I describe as having hair like an Aquafresh toothpaste tube. Like oh, it's just totally. It's like there's a certain wave to it, and there's like an amount of silver where it looks very helmety. 
in the way that it's styled. Like yeah. a, a helmet made out of Aquafresh toothpaste. It gets more and more Aquafreshy and more and more metallic as the seasons go on, too. Because he lasts yes, a while. Yes. Yes. So, okay, so he's sitting down with a defense attorney, and Stone says, they're arguing about what they want to do. The defense attorney wants to do manslaughter, and Stone says, quote, I get it. She wasn't there. And if she was there, she didn't kill them. And if she did kill them, she didn't mean to. And if she did mean to, it's because she was upset. (laughs) Listen, I can tell you 100% she didn't do it. But if she did, this is the circumstance. And if that's the circumstance, then she didn't do this, but she did do that. I love that. It's like a shell game. What is happening here? Exactly. Jerry Orbach is like, all right, you've done this before, but Stone holds to the murder charge. Everyone on Stone's camp is warning him that this case seems like a loser. They have a sympathetic witness. No one's going to blame her. But Stone is like, no, this is the right thing to do. You know, Stone, he's got mm-hmm. morals. He's got to stick to them. There's a weird side story that gets introduced about his dealings with money and jewelry that doesn't matter. Next, we have them finding out that Shirley had made a key to Edward's lock recently using a serial number from an existing copy of the key. But she didn't have mm. an existing copy of the key. So they find out that there's three copies of the key originals and one belonged to Edward, of course, one he had given to Alexandra and the other one is Jamie's. So they're pretty sure she's not buddies with (laughs) Alexandra (laughs) and they know she got it from Jamie, but they wonder maybe he didn't actually provide it to her. Maybe she stole it. So they're going to test the waters. They have Jamie in chambers and they're asking him, they're kind of like presenting options for him, how the cases going and they kind of drop the info that they have the key information and that she got his serial number and it's clear that he did not provide it so he he feels betrayed he feels lied to against his lawyer who is actually his mother's lawyer uh, against his best advice he ends up confessing that his mom said that his dad let her in on the night of the crime that she didn't have a key and that she was only going over to try to reconcile had no idea alexandra was there and she didn't mean for any of it to happen she was just so surprised and caught up surprised yeah caught up caught up why does usher come in in every episode (laughs) (laughs) back in chambers there's and while they're on the stand there's a lot of back and forth about what's admissible and what can be asked stone is like walking a very thin line and there's parameters but he also ultimately he wins getting in whatever evidence he wants into testimony and the jury seems to be really on his side at first um after the first few witnesses Shirley is revealed to have been stalking Alexandra. She tried to get into her apartment on multiple times and bribed the landlord. She'd been looking into her ex's finances to try to get more money out of him. You know, it's not looking good for her. No. They do another, like, meeting and they try to do a deal for manslaughter again, which would get her four years maximum. But Stone doesn't want that. She gives, like, a little speech, tries to sway him. It's very heartfelt about, you know, I'm not a used piece of furniture to be thrown away after 25 years. Stone is not moved whatsoever. Um, and he basically says, I think you're a liar. And I think you plan to do this. I don't believe you. <laughs> but he called her bluff and it worked because her manner totally changes from this very upset woman. She's suddenly like Mother Gothel from Tangled. And she's like, we'll see how this goes. The female jurors are going to believe me. And yeah. we're back in the courtroom and Jamie is on the stand. And he's about to give testimony about the key, which is their like prime prime piece of evidence. evidence yeah. And he lies under oath. He says she had her own key made a few months before because she was moving stuff out. And it's this shocking moment that no one saw coming. And so they call for recess immediately. It's revealed that she, of course, got to him again. And he did lie because he's a total mama's boy. 
and has no spine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Stone brings it back into into the courtroom. He puts him under cross examination, but he totally bullies him, and it makes everyone worried because now it's looking bad for him. He's he's looking like aggressive to this poor kid whose dad just died. They're even more worried because next Shirley is about to get on the stand, and the Lifetime movie is about to start. So. <laughs> anything could happen it's exactly what they expect um she claims that she saw her husband in bed with someone who was so young and attractive she was jealous she was upset she's in love she lost control and didn't know what to do she just wanted to be with him again stone gets the judge in a pretty risky decision after this testimony to drop the manslaughter from option at all so it's going to be basically like a pass fail case <laughs> it's murder or quit <laughs> i hate pass fail things Hate. You know, I feel like they have their place in the world. I, I guess so. And I I generally in like scholarly or education, whatever, this is how far long it's been since I've been in school. I don't even know what <laughs> word to use. I generally do well on pass fail, but I don't like the anxiety. <laughs> well, much. I think I mean, like pass fail, I guess like when I was at in doing my undergrad, like it was only like a D through or like a D plus through an A was pass and anything below that was fail. So it, it was sort of a way, I think I took one class where I knew I wasn't going to get an A in it and I, it was going to maybe drag down my average. And so I took it as pass fail because it fulfilled a requirement, but then I didn't have to have the like B or whatever I earned calculate into oh. my GPA or something. That's smart. I think I did that, something like that. Well, that's what the chance Stone is taking on this case, because he really, really doesn't want this girl to get manslaughter. He really wants her to go away. She killed two people. So they decide they're going to do this. It's risky, but the jury is instructed by the judge. All they need to allow her to go free completely is to have a mini scintilla of a doubt that it is not premeditated. The jury knows she killed him. She's confessed. That's not up for debate. It's just about the premeditation. So everything is weighing on this. The jury's deliberating and time is ticking away. Both sides are getting increasingly more nervous. And then Shirley's attorney offers a plea bargain of two counts of manslaughter for nine years. It's not the 25 to life that they want, but it's not the four for the one count of manslaughter. And everyone's yeah. kind of looking at Stone and they're like, it's your, your job, not mine. And <laughs> he's like, okay, he decides it's his best bet. He buckles and he takes it. And on the next scene, on the way out of the courtroom, as usual, we're ending the episode with the team on the stairs of a municipal building. And they overhear two jurors giving a statement saying that in an hour, they would have convicted her of murder. So she got lucky. As Robinette and Stone kind of walk away, Shirley is behind them giving a little mini press conference about how she loved Mm -hmm. her deceased husband. And that is the end of the episode. Well... Great job. Thank you. This case, I know you will know it because it's a very well-known case. I'm, I'm not sure if most people would know it if you're not into true crime at all. Are you okay if I just dive right in? Oh, I'm, I'm so ready. Okay. So this episode is based on the case of Betty Broderick. Do you <gasps> remember that name? Okay. I know the case. I think I you'll remember. You'll for sure remember it once I start telling you the I story. definitely, I definitely know the case. I, I remember it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the, my sources for this case, um, I read a lot about this case uh, because this it was big one. very, very well documented and a big case. So I'm not going to list every single thing I read because a lot of it reiterates the same information. Uh, I was just kind of like confirming things. So I'm going to read the, or I'm going to list the sources that I got most of my information from and kind of some of the quotes from as well. So okay. 
Um, number one, of course, you know, Wikipedia and, and um, the Law and Order Wiki gave me some good info to start with. This case was covered on My Favorite Murder, episode 103. Karen covered this case. I got some information on, like, mental health diagnoses from the Mayo Clinic website, a 2020 Esquire article by Gabriel Bruni, or sorry, Gabrielle Bruni, a 1990 LA Times article by Amy Wallace that is fantastic. It's a very long kind of expose about the this case. And so if you want to read anything about it, I highly recommend that article by Amy Wallace. I also got info from biography.com, a 1990 LA Times article by Alan Abrahamson, a 1989 LA Times article by Richard Serrano, a vulture.com article by Kenny Herzog, a 1991 LA Times article by Michael Cranberry, There was an entire podcast series called It Was Simple, The Betty Broderick Murders. I listened to all of it. And then there was a Bustle.com article by Amanda Whiting that I used as well. And then a bunch of others as well. But those are kind of the main ones that I'm drawing from today. Great. So, Betty Broderick was born Elizabeth Ann Biseglia, I think is how you say it, in November of 1947 and was born in Brooklyn, New York, and later raised in Bronxville. Is Bronxville different from the Bronx, by the way? Yes. It must be. Okay. So she was the third of six children and raised in a devout Roman Catholic family. Her mother was Irish-American and her father was Italian-American, both uh, Irish Catholic and Italian Catholic uh, (laughs) on, on both sides of her family. And in the My Favorite Murder episode, Karen makes a lot of jokes about how Betty was basically doomed from the start by being <laughs> Irish, Italian, American, Catholic. I mean, that's she was me. like, <laughs> "Well, I was just I literally my note to myself says that's literally both of our families because my mom's side of the family is Irish Catholic and you are Italian Catholic, right? Yeah, and my mom's side is Irish Catholic. Irish Catholic, so funny. Okay." <laughs> Betty speaks on her childhood, saying that she was raised pretty early on to be a housewife, that, you know, she wasn't raised to necessarily have like a lot of career aspirations or or things like that, but she was raised to be married, to find a good husband, to have a, a family. And that was, of course, more possible back in the 50s and the mid-1900s, where, you know, if you were white and middle class, it was much more possible back then to have a single income household. Yeah. In 1965, she graduated from high school and went on to earn a college degree in early childhood education with a minor in English at the College of Mount St. Vincent. And that year, she also met her future husband, Dan Broderick. He was born in 1944, so just three years older than she was. Also born to a large Irish Catholic family, very similar to the Biseglias. And the two of them met at the University of Notre Dame, where Dan was starting off his senior year. And originally, so Betty, by the way, was, and I don't mean was, like she's not now, but at this time, she was very beautiful, like really tall, really trim, just known for being very, very pretty. Dan Mm -hmm. was kind of like shorter, a little nerdy, a little bookish. And so when she first met him, she thought that she was like way out of his league and really didn't have much interest in him. But they did keep in touch and eventually... You know, he was kind of persistent. They eventually started dating, and only four years later, they got married on April 12th, 1969. One of the LA Times articles I used um, has a quote that said, Photographs from that day reveal a bride of striking beauty, rail thin and wrapped in lace, with bright eyes, long blonde hair, and a satisfied smile. So by all accounts, they were 
super happy together, kind of a an up-and-coming couple, basically. Mm-hmm. Upon return from their honeymoon, Betty was already pregnant um, and later gave birth to their first daughter, Kim, in 1970, followed by their daughter, Lee, in 71, son, Daniel, in 76, and son, Rhett, in 79, as well as an unnamed son who died four days after birth. So Mm -hmm. they were really, you know, started fast in on fulfilling that sort of family dream that she had envisioned, the Irish Catholic, Italian Catholic dream of having this, like, large family. But things didn't stay this perfect, <laughs> or, or else mm. I wouldn't be telling this story on the on this podcast. So, Dan completed his medical deg- degree at Cornell um, after their first child, Kim's birth. So he finished at Notre Dame, went on to Cornell to get his uh, medical doctorate, and then he decided that he wanted to pursue a law degree so that he could combine his medical expertise with law and essentially practice uh, medical malpractice law. Mm, a lot of money. Which the, a lot of money. But the minute I read that, I, my immediate thought was, it took me six years to finish my PhD, and I cannot imagine going through that process twice. Like, <laughs> to have to do that once and then go, and I'm going to do this other one and combine both of them. Twelve years. I mean, maybe it didn't take him quite that long. That sounds like a nightmare. Like a literal nightmare. Literal nightmare. He enrolled at Harvard Law. So one of the things that about Dan is he's, uh, by all the accounts written about him, he was really fucking smart. Like a really, really brilliant, fast, sharp man. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of his colleagues actually said that he thought Dan had the capability of eventually being president of the United States or a senator because he was so smart and a really, really good lawyer. Well, you know, I mean... That's... Dumber men have been president. I was so. going to say. <laughs> okay, so he finished his, his JD, and upon finishing his degree, he was pretty quickly hired by a law firm in San Diego. So he and his family moved from... At the time, they were kind of living in, like, graduate student housing uh, at Harvard, where he was finishing his law degree. And so they were kind of living not a very perfect life at this period of time. Some of the accounts... Uh, Betty talks about how, you know, she really wanted this, like, kind of picture-perfect family, and instead she was having the children, raising the children, but also working a lot to, like, support them because he was in school. So she was working a lot to kind of, like, keep this dream going. Yeah, not um, the so life those, she had Im- imagined. Correct. At least not at first. Like, those those few years while he was finishing his JD seemed like they were kind of tough for them. It sounds like maybe there were a few times where she talked about leaving because this wasn't what she envisioned. Uh, but they worked it out. He finishes his degree, gets a job at a high-profile law firm in San Diego, and they move across the country into a suburb of San Diego called La Jolla, which is a, is a pretty wealthy suburb of San Diego. It's beautiful. Yeah. At this point, Betty... Even though she, even though, you know, he was earning good money and all of that, she still worked a little bit part-time doing, like, Tupperware sales and Avon sales, but for the most part was kind of raising the kids. Uh, They didn't really need money at this point because they started to get pretty wealthy pretty quickly. Dan was earning what today's equivalent would be about $2.5 million per year, so they were doing pretty well. Mm. The Esquire article that I mentioned stated, he always looked straight from Polo. She always had very pretty clothes, Oscar de la Renta and the like. They had two maids. Dan bought a red Corvette. They had memberships to country clubs. They had a boat and they had a ski condo in Colorado. So they were doing really well. And 
you know, by all accounts, they sort of were making their way into the sort of elite social circles in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Although there was a little bit of, um, it sounds like they weren't maybe able to get into like the highest echelons of the like socialite life in San Diego. But they were kind of, a lot of the news articles referred to them as socialites because like she had like multi-thousand dollar gowns in her closets and, you know, the country clubs, second houses. So they were doing really well. Yeah, she seems like she'd be a shoo-in for Real Housewives of La Jolla. Oh, oh my God. She would have been perfect on a Real Housewives cast. Uh Especially because, as we know from watching the Real Housewives, they often get on the show because they need something else going on in their life because their marriage is not going perfectly. Hmm. Camille Grammer. So (laughs) everything wasn't perfect at home. Um, Their oldest daughter, Kim, was quoted as saying, Mom was always kind of weird. She would get mad at Dad all the time. And the couple's four children would later report that they had recalled Betty being violent and throwing a stereo at Dan during a fight, and said that she spanked her children with enough force to leave bruises and would even throw frozen frozen food at her children. Okay, that's where I draw the line. Yeah. Leaves the ice pops out of it. (laughs) I was picturing like a frozen (laughs) mac and cheese that's like a, a brick, just a fully solid brick of mac and cheese. I picture one of those cups of ice cream that have either the chocolate or the strawberry melted into it, and then you get the little Uh, wooden wooden stick with it. Wooden spoon, yeah. (laughs) Well, in the fall of 1982, Dan hired a woman named Linda Kolkana to be his legal assistant. One of the tricky things with this case in general is that we don't really hear some of the sides of the story. We only hear some of them and not others. And so a lot of the articles about Linda Kolkana say that she had been a Delta flight attendant and then got a job as a receptionist at the building where the law firm was. And then supposedly the story went that Dan was kind of attracted to her and interested in her. And so he hired her to be his legal assistant. And a lot of the articles note that she did not have the qualifications to do this job because she had never attended college, especially anything related to law, um, and she couldn't type, which both of those seem like pretty important skills to have as a legal assistant. Yeah. Um, Betty starts to kind of think that something is a little odd there. She's noticing changes in Dan's behavior, and she starts to think that Dan is having an affair with Linda, but Dan denies this to Betty. In Betty's diary, which would later become evidence, she had written, quote, That girl had nothing on me. I am prettier, smarter, classier. She is a dumb, uneducated tramp with no background or education or talent. He will definitely get over it. Ooh. Yeah. Those Damn. are some words. <laughs> I mean, I would be just as mad. <laughs> yeah. There was an incident where Betty decided she was going to sh- surprise Dan on his birthday. And she showed up to his office on his birthday. And Dan was not there. And neither was Linda. She did find in his office, like, wine glasses and indication that he had already been celebrating, but everybody at the office just told Betty that he and Linda had both left early for the day. So that didn't uh, necessarily help Dan's case that he and Linda were not having an affair, especially Mm -hmm. when Betty went into Linda's office and saw a picture of Dan from before he and Betty got married on Linda's desk. Oh, You might ask yourself, what would you do in this situation? And then, what do you think Betty did in response to this? (laughs) 
Mm, what would I do? I would grab the nearest stereo and I would throw it at the receptionist. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I'd, that I'd was not lose far from what... Internally. Yeah. Internally, exactly. Her choice was to take all of his custom-made clothing out of their closets and set them on fire in their <gasps> yard. Oh, okay, TLC. No, not TLC. Yeah, Lisa Lefty Lopez. God, I forgot about that. Mm. I cannot believe I forgot about that. Okay, by the way, almost everything that I'm going to describe in this story, the very large percentage of it seems to have happened in the presence of the children, which... Mm. When I start talking about some of the things that happen is kind of cringeworthy. So in February of 1985, things weren't going well. Against Betty's wishes, Dan moved out of their house, which again was not well received by Betty because she started to do even stranger things. One by one, she would take one of their children and abandon that child on his doorstep and drive away. She started this with their eldest child, Kim, who was 12 at the time and just dropped her at his house on Easter Sunday. And by the way, sometimes he wasn't even home. She just left the child on his property and drove away. Unbelievable. The other kids at the time were 11, 6, and 3 years old. So, listen, marriages fall apart, people get messy, but please don't use your children as, like, pawns in all of this. It is not a good look for you or whatever future you might have with your children, let alone this spouse that you're in the process of separating from. Uh, it happens all the time. I know. So she claims that she did this because she wanted Dan to see how difficult it was being a single parent. Like, here, here's a kid, deal with it. Like, this is my life, take care of it and, you know, tell me how hard my life is now. But not Dan, the best tactic. <laughs> it was not the best tactic. It actually backfired quite a bit because Dan used this as justification to get full custody of the children. Basically, you know, he was a lawyer. He knew the ins and outs of the legal system. He was a really competent, well-respected lawyer. And everything that Betty seemed to do in this became more fodder for him to use against her in a yeah, lot of ways. Yeah, she just played into his hand. Yeah, and so this whole case is very, very interesting because if you sort of survey people's opinions, a lot of people, there's a very, very large percentage of people who think that Betty is the victim in all of this and all of everything she does is very understandable and that she was kind of taken advantage of by her like hotshot husband lawyer, which we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, but I think there's a little bit of like a chicken and the egg type situation going on here where there's a lot of contributing factors to all of this. It's not an it's not an only this or that type situation, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm, yeah. Okay. So he got full custody of the kids, and um, at this point, a pretty ugly, hostile divorce ensued, and just the divorce ended up getting a fair amount of press as well. Betty told the LA Times, quote, All my life, I tried so hard to be a good daughter, a good wife, a good neighbor, but my husband unzips his fly and screws the bimbo, and I lose all that. So their case did get a lot of attention, as I said, because in part because it was really at the height of divorce rates in the United States. Like the the late 80s, early 90s, as we've talked about, was a, a pretty big rise in divorce rates. I remember like it was such a conversation in school when I was a kid, oh, yeah. like kids talking about whose parents were divorced and whose weren't and blah, blah, blah. Um, so they got a, a lot of attention for that. And also because this case involved this claim where she said, I put him through graduate school and professional school and had his kids and raised his kids. And he just sort of like dumped me once he was done with that. 
And so she felt really kind of like fucked over and, and used. And also, I think that I, I think I heard this in the podcast, so I can't quite note my sor- source for this, but I'm pretty sure that in the podcast they mentioned that this case was one of the pretty early cases on court court TV as mm-hmm. well. So that's another reason it got some pretty big attention. Of course. So Betty did feel like she was at a pretty severe disadvantage during the divorce since he was this high-powered attorney and she didn't have the same resources and connections um, that he did. And she claims that he used his legal influence to win the sole custody of the children. Um, He actually manages to, through some kind of legal backdoor, he manages to sell the house that she's in against her wishes. (laughs) And he also manages to prevent her from having her, like, quote unquote, like, equal share of the income. But her, what she got in the settlement was that she, she said, I can't live on this. Like, this is not what I'm owed. She was getting $16,000 a month, which is a fuck ton of money, even today. And so a lot of people were like, what the fuck do you mean you can't live on $16,000 a month? Are so, you, I would die. I would die. I would die. I would be thrilled. So there are indications, as I said, opinions are very divided on this. There are indications that Dan used his legal knowledge and his legal connections to, to strengthen his position in this divorce case. But also... Based on what I'm about to tell you, I can understand why he did some of the things he did, even if it didn't necessarily, like, help the situation and maybe even made it worse. Okay. So, four years after they file for divorce, it's finally finalized in 1989. But that is not the end of it, unfortunately. Betty did not take the divorce well, and her behavior became increasingly violent and irrational. She accused Linda, Dan's uh, fiancé at the time—they get married later— uh, he, she accused Linda of taunting her by doing things like mailing her advertisements for face cream and advertisements for weight loss. And uh-huh. there was even one accusation that she claims Linda sent her a note that with like about weight loss supplements with a note that said, eat your heart out, bitch, which Ugh. everybody on the Dan and Linda side of things says was not in her character at all. And that mm-hmm. never like seemed to surface in evidence, but it was one of the things that Betty claimed. Gotcha. I remember so, oh, this and- part a lot. Yeah. And by the way, one of the sticking points in all of this for Betty seems to be that, you know, Betty, when she and Dan met, she was this tall, beautiful, thin woman. You know, she's had a few kids by now. She's not quite as thin as she used to be. And Dan goes and meets Linda, who in a lot of ways, when I look at photos of the two of them, really looks like Linda or really looks like Betty back when they got married, like also thin and blonde and beautiful and and. 20 years younger mm-hmm. than Dan and Linda at this time. So she basically kind of feels like she's been replaced with like the, you know, quote unquote, new model or whatever. Yeah. And <laughs> get ready for this list. Betty, these are some of the things she did. She ignored numerous restraining orders, entered their house randomly, spray painted all over their bedroom walls, <sighs> smashed mirrors in the house took a pie that Linda had made out of the refrigerator and smeared it all over their bedroom. She threw bottles of wine through their windows and even drove her car through the front door of his house while their children were inside. Oh, inside the car or in the house? In the house? In the house. Oh my God. Listen to this quote. So Dan said, 
they heard this like huge crash at the front of their house and he says he ran to the front door to see what it was and he saw that elizabeth had crashed her suburban into the front of the house knocked the front door off his hinges out of the frame and kind of like causing a bunch of damage to the brickwork on the outside of the house and when he ran out there to see what she was doing or what had happened she was backing her car into reverse to try to ram the house a second time he manages to like get the door open and like get her to stop and then she bit grabs this huge kitchen knife that she had brought with her to the scene and tries to attack Dan. He manages to take get the knife away, subdue her, and she is taken away from the scene in a straitjacket and placed on a 72-hour hold at a local psychiatric hospital. So I don't support Betty's choices, but it really does sound like there's a lot of mental health issues going on for her at this time. I mean, something's got to be going on. Yes. Oh so, my gosh. Betty also, over the period of him and and Linda being together, she left hundreds of profane messages on Dan's answering machine. And Dan kind of had this bizarre arrangement for the alimony that she was getting, where he was able to kind of penalize her for bad behavior and and reduce the amount of money she would get every month. So Mm. he, he basically set up this thing where he was like, every time you use a profane word on a message to us, I'm going to deduct this amount from what you're going to get in your monthly check. So it's kind of like this weird reverse swear jar thing, but, (laughs) but there's a lawyer on the, uh, uh, the documentary or the uh, podcast that I talked about who's like, that is a, very unusual alimony situation where you can like punish them for bad behavior by withholding money yeah i feel like that sounds like it's not it it shouldn't be something that could happen but it also sounds like the fact that it happened means that right she was must have been exhibiting some outrageous behavior in order for this (laughs) to have to happen yeah so he definitely like dan definitely did some things that like, we're kind of dickish in all of this. Like, I don't know. I Going on. <laughs> Adding insult to injury, Dan and Linda Colcano were married on April 22nd of 1989. At this point, Linda was so worried about Dan's safety that she they hired security for their wedding, and she even encouraged him to wear a bulletproof vest to their wedding. Ugh. He did not, but thankfully Betty did not show up at the wedding, and it proceeded without incident. On November 5th, 1989, just two days before Betty's birthday, um, I want to say her, like, 42nd birthday, and seven months after Dan and Linda's wedding, Betty drove to Dan's house located near Balboa Park in San Diego. It was 5.30 in the morning, and she had stolen a key from her daughter, Lee, and entered the house while Dan and Linda were asleep upstairs. There, using a revolver that she had purchased around the time of Dan and Linda's wedding, she opened fire, firing a total of five shots. This was not an automatic weapon, which means she had to pull the trigger five separate times. Mm. Two bullets hit Linda, one in the head and one in the chest, and the one that hit her in the head killed her instantly. Three more shots were fired. One hit the wall. Another hit a nightstand next to the bed, and a third hit Dan in the chest as he was reaching for the phone to call the police. Linda died almost instantly. While medical evidence showed that Dan did not die right away, and Betty later admitted that she had spoken to him after she had shot him, Dan's apparent last words were, Okay, you got me. Mm. The medical examiner said that Dan's death took several minutes, his lungs filled up with blood, 
and eventually made it impossible for him to breathe. So he sort of drowned in his own blood. Oh my god, that must have been terrible. Horrifying. Evidence presented at trial showed that Betty had removed a phone and answering machine from the bedroom before she began shooting to prevent them from calling for help. Oh. But one of the articles from the New York Times says that Betty saw him heading for the phone after, you know, she had shot him while he was heading for the phone. And now that he's wounded, she went over, yanked the phone out of the wall and fled. So either way, it's horrifying because she either premeditated, took the phone away so that they couldn't call for help, or shot him, shot them both, and then took the phone away so that they couldn't call for help. Yeah, it doesn't really matter at that point. So it doesn't really matter. I guess maybe it goes to premeditation a little bit, depending on whether it happened first or second. Yeah. I don't know. So Betty then called her daughter Lee and turned herself into the police. She never denied that she had pulled the trigger five times and shot Dan and Linda, so she admitted to it. At trial, Betty explained that she had never planned to kill Dan and Linda, and it was not premeditated. Her story was that when she went into their bedroom at 5.30 in the morning with a gun, (laughs) Linda screamed, call the police, which startled Betty and caused her to shoot at them. Um... I don't okay. personally buy that. <laughs> uh, I don't. It's not buyable. It's it's out of it's off out of stock. <laughs> yeah. At trial, Betty's defense was that she had suffered years of abuse from Dan, including psychological, mental, and emotional abuse, as well as physical abuse. She stated, "I have never had emotional disturbance or mental illness, except when he provoked a disturbance." My emotional outbursts were only a response to Dan's calculating, hateful way of dealing with our divorce. He was hammering into me and everyone else that I was crazy. How long can you live like that? So I will say, I do have an opinion on this case, but, and I can share that at the end, but there are indications to me that Dan could have been like gaslighting Betty and and all of that. Like he he really did have all of the advantage in this situation. And when divorces get ugly, people use everything to their advantage. So I can fully see him doing a lot of the behavior that sets her off. But I'm not saying that he shouldn't have done those things or she shouldn't have, you know, whatever. So it's it's a little bit of a kind of like a question of what precipitated all of this behavior. But yeah. I, I have my opinion on that that I'll get to at the end. Okay. Betty was trying to sell the story in the media that she had essentially been like kind of used by Dan and she couldn't survive on that divorce settlement. But that didn't really garner her a lot of sympathy because it was $16,000 a month, which is more than most people make. <laughs> More than I make. The prosecution denied the abuse claims, and they employed a psychiatrist who diagnosed Betty with histrionic and narcissistic personality disorders. And this is where I went to the Mayo Clinic website to to see what that was. And so narcissistic personality disorder is one where people have an inflated sense of their own importance, a deep need for attention and admiration, troubled relationships, and a lack of empathy for others histrionic personality disorder is um, characterized by constantly seeking attention, excessively emotional, dramatic, or sexually provocative behavior to gain attention, um, speaking dramatically with strong opinions, but with few facts or details to back them up, um, shallow, rapidly changing emotions, excessive concern with physical appearance, and thinking that relationships are closer than they actually are. 
Oh my so, god! I you just those... read to me some people in my life. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> but when I when I read those, I was like, I mean, yeah, those really a lot of those things seem present in the behavior that we're seeing from oh, Betty at totally. this point. Totally. So Betty's daughter, um, Kim, testified at the trial and also refutes the claims that Dan had abused Betty, saying she never saw Dan hurt Betty, but said that she saw Betty hurting Dan pretty often and said she once saw him saw her dig her fingernails into his back and on another occasion said, I'm going to kill the son of a bitch. I'm going to shoot him in the head. The world will be a better place and everyone will thank me. <sighs> These claims were backed up by people who had seen Betty at the firing range practicing, oh. where she talked about killing her husband. She was just filming a scene for Real Housewives of La Jolla. They do that kind of stuff all the time. Firing Honestly, ranges. Firing ranges, yes. <laughs> so the prosecution also played a pretty emotional tape in which their son, Danny, who was 11 at the time of the recording, is basically like crying to his mother, begging her to stop being so nasty to Dan and Linda. He's like, you're saying all these awful words. By the way, she had two specific words that she would not say the word, like, names Dan or Linda to her kids. She basically only used, like, insult words to refer to them. And I couldn't, I, I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but the word that it seems she used for Linda was maybe the C word. Uh-huh. Um, Sounds like she might have also called her like a tramp or a slut or things like that. Those are kind of the words that she would use to refer to Linda. And she also had um, some choice words for Dan as well. So sure. her kid was crying on this recording saying like, stop using these words. And in the recording, he said, all you care about is your stupid money. You want everything. You want all the kids, all the money to get rid of Linda. And it's not going to work, mom. You've been mad long enough. And on the recording, she says, no I haven't. Oh, my God. Her first trial ends in a hung jury because what? two of the jurors believed that there was a lack of intent to commit murder. I, I don't see how they got to that what? conclusion, but again, I was not a juror, so I can't speak to that. Interestingly, though, the jury seemed to have the choice of whether she would be found guilty of murder in the first or manslaughter, and from what I could glean and at, the, at her second trial, which was kind of a, a repetition of the first, at the second trial, they were given this choice of whether she would be found guilty of murder, guilty of manslaughter, and from what I was able to determine is that they, they decided that she did intend to commit the murder, so it was not manslaughter, but it seemed that the defense's strategy of portraying Betty as... Um, kind of emotionally abused and like out of choices and frantic did sway the jurors not to convict her for murder one. So the her at her second trial, the jurors found her guilty and um, settled on two charges of murder two. Hmm. Okay. Betty was sentenced to a to two consecutive terms of fifteen years to life plus two for the illegal use of a firearm. Betty became eligible for parole in January of 2010, but she was denied parole by the review board because she did not demonstrate remorse and she refused to acknowledge any wrongdoing. Wow. 2010, she, that was. 2010. <laughs> in 2011, she was denied parole again for the same reasons. Move and again on. in 2017. <laughs> so, so she <sighs> killed them in, what was the year? Uh, 1989. And in 2017, she's still saying she did not do anything wrong. 
Move on with your life, lady. It has been 30 years. Yeah. At this point, she will not be eligible for parole until January of 2032, at which point she will be 85 years old. In the media, the story of Betty, Dan, and Linda got extensive coverage. It, (laughs) I just wanted to list it because it's kind of bananas. There was a television movie starring Meredith Baxter. She received an Emmy Award for her portrayal of Betty. I'm pretty sure I've seen it. There was a season four episode of Deadly Women about Betty. Mm. She was on the Oprah show twice. She was on hard copy. She was on 2020. And four different books were written about her life. And unfortunately, I couldn't get them. Like, I, I would have got one of them to kind of include as my sources. But they weren't available, like, for Kindles. And I wasn't, it wasn't going to get here in time for me to uh, read it for our episode. So four different books about her life. Um, the, of course, this 1991 episode of Law and Order. A, the second season of the TV show Dirty John was about the Betty Broderick murders. I heard about that. I wanted to see that. I tried to find it to watch it for this episode, but I couldn't get to it in time. Like I couldn't find it and I was like, going to have to buy it or something. Do you know who plays her? I do. Amanda Peet plays Betty, and Christian Slater plays Dan. I like Amanda Peet. I do, too. Um, Of course, the podcast that I mentioned, it called It Was Simple, The Betty Broderick Murders. I will say it's comprehensive, um, and it's very much in the style of, like, investigative journalism. Like, a little bit—it's a little bit too emotional and not— just about the facts like it, it's it. it's definitely has a perspective is what i'll say about it okay um there was the oxygen episode of snapped that featured betty's story and then our podcast <laughs> so <laughs> here we are contributing to it yeah so when you and i are talking about these crimes we often talk about how there are people who are talked about and there are people who are kind of completely forgotten in these cases and in this case the person who's kind of forgotten in all of this is linda Colcana, yeah. dan's fiance or dan's wife Um, In the podcast series about Betty and Dan, they talked about how Linda is just kind of like a footnote in this story. And um, friends of Linda say that they they hate the way that she was portrayed in the media as this, like, quote-unquote, bimbo, this, like, husband-stealing bimbo who, like, broke up this marriage. I personally, people can disagree with me on this, I never think it's the, like, person who's sleeping with a married person, like, that person. It's not their fault. No. It's not their fault that that person's married. So I I hate it when people place blame on that on that person or those people in general. I agree. I agree 100%. Linda was only 28 years old at the time of her death. Friends described her as warm and funny and beautiful and kind. One of them called her a natural comedian. And the couple had reportedly been talking to friends and family about how they were really excited to start having children together, and they planned on having a large family together, and of course, all of that was taken away from them. I'm, I'm going to close with a quote from Betty, and then we can talk about what we think about this case. Okay. Betty said about Dan and Linda, It always makes me mad when people call them the victims. Me and my kids were the victims. There are two dead people, but there were five victims, she says. She also stated, My choice was to kill them or kill myself, and I couldn't let him win. And that is the story of Betty Broderick and the murders of Dan and uh, Dan Broderick and Linda Colcana. Oh, well done. That's a big one. Is, 
it's really interesting. Like a lot of the articles I read and the podcast talk about like, why did this story capture people's attention so much? What is it about it? And, you know, they say a couple of the things I already said, like the rise of court TV, um, the rise of divorces. But then this case specifically caught a lot of people's attention because typically in spousal murders, it's almost always the husband killing the wife, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And, like, this was kind of one of the first cases that the nation had sort of been exposed to of the rich and, like, well-to-do sort of having this sordid life. And so people talk about, like, oh, it was just, like, really gripping for people because they were like, oh, rich people, they have problems, too. Like, they're just as fucked up as the rest of humanity. And so it just kind of, like, got this – it was kind of just this gripping – story that people really wanted to know what was going on. And of course, people, like I said, have really strong opinions about this case. If you, um, on the podcast, the uh, It Was Simple podcast, they talk about how they went and looked at all of the like social media accounts about Dan and Linda and Betty. And they said like 80% of them are like pro-Betty and only 20% of them are like in support of Dan and Linda. And I'm just, I'm fascinated by this because I did a lot of research for this case, and I read a lot about it, and that's not where my feeling lies. I definitely, I don't deny that maybe Dan did a lot of dickish things in their divorce. Maybe Linda sent her mean things in the mail. That doesn't justify killing them. No, not at all. And I so, I, I, can't, yeah, like, I can understand people being on Betty's side as far as, like, you know, she had a challenging life. She was in a terrible situation for a long time probably and this was probably heartbreaking on a whole different level and who knows what could be going on but you can't be on her side to kill (laughs) linda and and her ex-husband and behave that way in front of her children like all of it you know it's not excusable i think people loved it also because she looks so uh, just a mom you know she, she totally like looks a... like she looks like the the mom that volunteers at the like library at your yeah. middle school like she's just absolutely the average like all-american mom kind of mm-hmm. thing and you know granted an, an upper middle class mom based on the lives they were living but yeah it's just fascinating that i i totally understand betty worked really hard to support their family while he was pursuing all of his graduate career stuff. And then sort of like shortly after they started to like hit it big, she got thrown by the wayside. So I get how that fucking hurt her really deeply. But again, doesn't excuse killing people. And based on a lot of what even just her children say, it doesn't sound like she was particularly well um, overall. And... Mm -hmm. And that that in itself is also really sad. Like, I would hope that somebody who needs that kind of, like, mental health support could get that. And it sounds like Betty did not. But it's it's kind of fascinating because, like, the public division um, and opinion about this case, even their kids are pretty divided about it. Like, some of them are the older kids tend to, who were, like, aware more of what was going on and could witness more of their parents' behavior and kind of, like, retain what was happening. The older kids are definitely on the side of, like, Dan and Linda, and my mother should not be released from prison. Like, they interviewed the kids, um, you know, after all of this and asked them, like, should your, you know, mom be released when all of these parole hearings were happening? And the older kids are like, no, absolutely not. She has not expressed remorse for this. I believe that she is not a safe person to release back into society. Those are like the words of her older kids. But the younger kids who just sort of like 
only ever knew like the like nurturing moments of their mom as they were like little kids and didn't really see the dynamics of the wedding and the divorce and all of that as much seemed to be much more of the perspective that Betty has been rehabilitated and should uh, kind of be released at her next parole opportunity. I don't know. I I mean, it's really interesting because the way that the parole system works is you have to acknowledge your wrongdoing and you have to acknowledge remorse in order to be granted parole. And she doesn't seem like she's going to be doing that anytime soon. Well, it sounds like she's got 13 years or something. When is it? Yeah, to figure that out. Uh, 2032, I believe, is the next time that she is eligible for parole. Well, we'll see. I mean, at that point, she's in her 80s, right? Yeah. 85, yeah, Mm -hmm. in 2032. So it's 2021 now. So in 11 years, Betty might be up for parole again. So if (laughs) if this podcast is still going in 11 years, let's uh, revisit the Betty Broderick story. Imagine. I don't know. I'd be really interested to hear from the listeners on what they think about this case. Because like I said, uh, there's so, so strong of opinions about it. I'd be really curious to hear from other folks, especially if you've, you know, watched any of these shows about her or read any of these books or articles. If you have thoughts or opinions on the case or anything that I left out that sort of sways you one direction or another, um, please let us know. Because I'd be really interested to hear what people think about this. Yeah, me too. Me too. Because it is it is pretty controversial. Like it's pretty... yeah. It could go either way. Definitely. So that's that's the Betty Broderick murder story. That's a good one. That's a good one to cover. It's just it's so um, memorable to me as a true crime thing for me growing up. Yes. Yeah. I mean, all of that behavior leading up like to the murder was just terrifying. One of the and she would I constantly remember. break restraining orders. Like right. Like what, they what else kind of like couldn't escape. <laughs> right. So anyway, what were you gonna say? I, I just always remember there was, I feel like the the media was really terrible to her about the way she looked for a while when she was... Oh, yeah. Like, I feel like that was a big thing. Like, they focused on the fact that the motive could have been jealousy and that, totally. you know, Linda yes. was so young and beautiful and trim and slim. And then Betty had put on weight from when she had married her husband and had become, like... You know, older. You get older. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, you age. That happens to all of us. Yeah, and she's still a very attractive woman when you look at pictures of her. Not that it matters, yeah. but the media right. put a lot of like emphasis on like, look at this dowdy, once beautiful woman who has become yes. this. She's all you know, used up, and now she's jealous, and she yeah. killed out of jealousy. It's yeah. that trope and that that, that exists in in media yes. to today still. You know. And it's so insulting to to women generally that it all gets reduced down to like how pretty you are in mm-hmm. all of this. It's it's a deeply sexist narrative that 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 the media took with that storyline. I think, but it's yeah, it's so so complicated. It's a really kind of fascinating story um, mm-hmm. because I think I think part of the reason why this story is also so gripping is like I said, I, I'm kind of more on the side of her actions were not justified. Same. However, that doesn't stop me from having sympathy for the fact that she, the life that she was kind of like being promised and and sold and was and worked years of her life to support was suddenly kind of like yanked out from under her and I can see how that was very traumatic for her. So it it's I think part of the reason why this case is so gripping to people is because you do have sympathy for sort of like everyone involved, even the person who did this awful awful thing. Sure, and I mean it everyone... kind of reminds me Go ahead. It kind of reminds me of, in a lot of ways, the Menendez case, Mm. where, um, you know, part of that, the argument in that case was 
they said they killed because they were afraid of being assaulted again. But it was like, well, you are out of the house. You're adults now. You don't have to be there. So the like imminent fear of danger that would have justified the Menendez shooting their parents, the Menendez brothers shooting their parents, like that sort of fell apart in court. And that's, it reminds me of this where Betty's saying like, he had mentally and emotionally abused me for years. Like what choice did I have? But it's like, well, your life was not in danger. You did not do this out of self-defense. Like revenge. went over there at 530 in the morning and did this out of revenge or yeah. whatever it was. So yeah, f- very, very complicated case, but a really interesting one. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, I think it's relatable to, to a lot of people probably when you have a dream or a, a view of what your life is going to look like. And then the, either the harsh reality that it's not going to look like that, or when the bottom falls out on it and you're already in your mind past your prime or like you're too old or too far past the opportunity to get it back again. And it sounds like all she's ever really wanted for her life was to be a mom and a wife. Right. And have like, you know, the house and, and all the nice things, which, yeah. you know, she has every right to want that for herself. And she doesn't have to have a backup plan, of course, but it right. sounds like her lack of a backup backup plan partially, you know, caused her to feel like, what else am I going to do? I'm, you know, 40 yes. something years old now. I'm, yeah. I'm not the woman I once was. And the media is reminding me of it all the time. I mean, by that time she had done it, but you know, her husband's reminding her of it all the time. And she's seeing the new woman, which is a reminder of, of that as well. And so, yes, you know, her life feels like I had everything. I lost it. I'll never get it back. What do I have to lose? Probably. Right. Not justifying it, but you know, I can understand the emotion behind that. I I can't understand the (laughs) the actions. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, what do you think about how the episode dealt with this? How would you rate it in terms of watchability and like dealing with the issue? I actually think this was a pretty, one of the best ones yet. A hundred percent. I was shocked when it was like almost over because usually, as I've said, when I'm recapping the episodes, usually I'll be like, okay, this must be approaching the end because I feel like we're wrapping up the storyline and then I'll like press pause or whatever to like, you know, go use the restroom or something. I'm like, oh my God, there's still 25 minutes left of this episode. <laughs> this was the first time I had been watching it where I was like, oh my gosh, it's it's like actually over. Yeah. So, I yeah. do think it was one of the more watchable episodes for sure. I think the storytelling is getting better. I think the acting is getting a little bit better. And I think, you know, yeah, overall, I, I would say watchability, yeah. I would give it in A minus. You know, I was just, okay, here's an important question that we never discussed when talking about our rating scales. Mm. In my mind, if I ever assign Law and Order an A or like A plus or whatever, it is in terms of what I think is the pinnacle that law and order can achieve. Not mm-hmm. like this is the best media that has oh, ever been created. Yes, you know? Yes. Like if I, cause I was thinking like for law and order, I would give this episode like an A minus, but that's not to say like it's on par with <laughs> sliding doors, the Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> movie that we've talked about. <laughs> this is no sliding doors. <laughs> this is no sliding doors. Um, but yeah, I think I would agree with you. It's definitely one of the more watchable. I, I would probably give it an, an A minus for watchability. Yeah, I'm holding on. T- I think I've given one thing an A, like a solid A. I don't know if I have, but I'm going to start fresh and do A minus for watchability. And for the how it handled the actual crime, I'm going to give it an A, actually, because okay. I think it covered enough of the crime where it's very recognizable it covered a lot of the aspects of the crime, but it changed enough of it where it was, you know, 
something different. So it's, you know, truly ripped yeah. from the headlines and gave the twists with yes. the sun and stuff like that. But I think it, it covered all the bases. Well, great. But yeah. Um, I think I would give it a, so I did a minus watchability. I'm going to give it, yeah, I'll give it an a minus for storyline. Like it was for an hour long show. It pretty much did as much as it could with this story. Like it couldn't really have delved into it a lot deeper in the amount of time that they had. So I think for, with what they were working with, I think they did an a minus job. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of like nonsensical storylines. They started going into like no, his like no red business, and I was like, "This is stupid," yeah. and I'm not paying attention. <laughs> but other than that, I thought it was good, and the acting was pretty good. Yeah. Well, ripped from the headlines is an indie podcast. We do this ourselves, so if you enjoy listening to us and think other folks might too, the best best thing you can do for us is to rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to us, because that's really what helps other people find us. Yes. And another great way to help other people find our podcast is through word of mouth. So tell a friend, post about us on Reddit, or find other ways to spread the word. Mm -hmm. And we really love chatting with you guys, connecting with all of our listeners. So feel free to send us an email to rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. And you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Ripped Headlines. And don't forget to check out our website, rippedheadlinespod.com. We will be launching a newsletter, a merch store, Patreon, and other cool things are coming up. So keep an eye on the website. Yeah, and you've heard us recommend a lot of true crime podcasts on this show and all that. So if you have any true crime podcasts that you love... Please let us know. Um, we'd love to collaborate with anyone out there. So get us in touch with another podcast or get them in touch with us. We ha- absolutely love collaborating. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Why did I do that like Count Dracula? <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Ripped from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week. And until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye. Bye.